My name is Athena Kablenu. I'm a stand-up comedian, podcaster, writer and parent. And being a parent is brilliant, but I do miss adult conversations. So to fix that, I, inv I invite a friend around every now and again to keep my company. And today I'm joined by the fabulous Rialina. Hello. Hello. Well, and I'm, you're holding my child. Yeah, I do. I have arms full of baby and a mouth full of plantain, and I'm so happy right now. Heavenly. Sounds heavenly. You do all the talking. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy <laughs> this is This is not what people <laughs> listen to the podcast for. So just listen to me moaning about white supremacy. They're sick of it. They're sick of it. Are they? Oh, oh, well then everyone. that's not going to help because I can join right in with that. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of moaning about the home office. I'm sick of moaning about the government. That's not me, by the way. That's the baby. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can wait till he farts and then you'll have to be really apologetic. It's so annoying. He's, he farts when I'm on Zoom and I'm like, <laughs> and I never know whether to apologize for it because they didn't hear it or because they heard it or maybe they didn't hear it and I don't need to say anything. And they think it's you. <laughs> all right. He's going to be with us throughout the whole podcast. First of all, how are you? You, you know, you all things considered, I'm all right. How did you occupy yourself during the lockdown? Well, I had I have kids as well. So there was a lot of kid time. You know, and then okay, at night, shut the door, do a quick Zoom gig and whatever, and, and some writing. But uh, because of how much we travel for a living and everything else, and be because of the years that I haven't been able to put my kids to bed, I, I just focused on that and it was wonderful I loved it you know wearing the same clothes five days in a row and they still don't need a wash because they haven't <laughs> gone anywhere and cooking proper food yeah. for the children instead of heating something up or going help yourself from whatever you can make in the fridge and they're having sort of ketchup pickle dinners and yeah so it was just I found it really for me it was a really healthy time of just of just spending time with the family and relaxing and like you know exercising when you can walks and in when the weather was nice. Remember when the weather was nice last summer? I remember when it was nice. I remember really enjoying lockdown and thinking, guys, this is great. <laughs> you know, like mm. it's like I was drinking, I was pregnant, so I was drinking my alcohol-free beers in the garden. And my daughter was running around. Uh, it was hot. I was eating choc ice after choc ice because when you're pregnant, you can do that. Yes, you can. Um, so, I mean, by, the way, by the way, you can do that if you're not pregnant. I don't want to food shame anyone. Eat 20 choc ices if that's your Oh, good. Yeah, thing. that, that happens. <laughs> I mean, well, I would I would go to the parking exercise purely for the ice cream. Right. Just, you know, but it doesn't matter what your motivations are. <laughs> you can eat ice cream whenever. Eat ice cream after watching Love Island if that's your if that's your thing. But I, I really, I felt privileged. I think a lot of people, I think if people who are maybe like alone and they're not really the kind of people that like their own company or people who were single and they were dating at the mm, time mm. i think they would have had well, they would have had a hard lockdown because that would have been a big adjustment I, so i was really grateful and I, and I said to you just before we started i just moved into this house with my partner mm. a few months before so that was a lot that was a timely decision because had we not been living together if i was still at my mom he was he was that was the baby too oh, butterfingers yeah. baby um, oh, we dropped got, the maraca. Got a, got we're gonna we're gonna go with the keys now. Yeah, we go. Got, he's still Look got a that. toy left, still, still standing. One toy left. So that was yeah, that was um, a a really timely decision to do that. So I enjoyed lockdown. You know, hanging yeah. out, and my kids are preschool kids. So it's just uh, you know, I, I, I really I looked at everyone who had primary school kids or any kids that can't read. You know where they had, or even primary school, you had to really do the teaching because it mm. wasn't enough. My kids are a bit older; they're all in secondary school, so they were you were able to give them something, and go read this, and then answer the questions off the back of you know reading it. Uh, and a lot of their work is online, so there was online resources and things like that. Where anyone with primary school kids, young kids that also still had to try and get work done, 
I don't know how you did it. So I know that I was very blessed in being in the position I was in during lockdown. And like you said, there were people who lived alone. There were people who maybe lived in, in tricky situations that, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. Why play with the toy when my finger is so oh, much he likes, nicer? Oh, he to likes bite. to he likes to eat fingers, and that was not so fun. Now he's got teeth. Baby teeth are so hard. I don't know why they need. They don't chew. They don't have. They have soft food. Yeah, they puree everything. <laughs> and yeah, what to do with those teeth? Yeah, no, it's just literally to ruin your nipples. That's what baby teeth are for, <laughs> as I discovered. So you've got three children. We were discussing the perfect number of children to have. Uh, and I and I said, you know what? If I'd had kids earlier in my life, I might have squeezed out another for the crack. But you're like, oh nah, three's an uneven number. You know, the hotel rooms don't work. No, it, well, so I wanted four, right? Because I was one of two, which was great. And I think two kids is great. You've got w- one parent each, and you go on holiday, and you know, when you're smaller, you can all fit into one hotel room with two double beds in it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, I wanted four because I always wanted loads of siblings because it was just the four of us and that was it. We didn't have extended family. So I wanted four and we had one. My husband had a son already. And so when I started having kids, it was like, okay, we had one and then I had one and we had two. And they were nine years apart. So so my eldest was nine when the baby was born. And then I had another one and it was still like having three. But then by the time, and this is what I didn't calculate, so I had my third going, yay, now we have four. But by the time the youngest was old enough to sort of interact and play, the oldest was a teenager. Yeah. And so it was actually like having three. But I remember so clearly giving birth to the third one, going, oh, I can't do this again. Oh, thank goodness I don't have to do this again. I'm done. And and it, I was done because I had three under fours because I just went boom, boom, boom and just shot them out. And I thought, I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't do a fourth of my own. I wish I can't, sometimes I kind of wish I had, but just in case, because I only have one girl, three boys, one girl, and I wanted... I only wanted girls. My boys are great, but I only wanted girls. And so sometimes I go, oh, if I had that fourth, would it have been that extra girl I wanted? Uh, but it would have been another boy. It's always the way. Well, this is it. It would have been if another I, boy. If I had one, it would have been a boy. But now yeah. that I didn't have one, it would have been a girl, you know, which is a logic that only makes sense to mothers. I didn't really think, when I got pregnant the first time, I didn't really think too much about the gender. But when I went for my sex scan or whatever, mm. um, and I said it was a girl, I went, yes. <laughs> You know, I was like, yeah, that's what we need, more girls in the world. Do you think that people are born with their personalities? Oh, a, a huge amount, yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Because also, uh, I could tell different things from the kids. My daughter uh, got, she, you know, towards those last couple months, her feet got wedged under my rib, and she would just kick and kick and I had oh she just bruised she bruised my ribs because she was stuck under there kicking against this one rib and it was painful for the last sort of four weeks of pregnancy and then she came out and of course she's a baby can't can't walk or anything but then she gets to being a toddler and and she wants to jump and I watched her just try learn to jump and over she'd stand in the mirror in my bedroom and just try and jump and try and jump and, and eventually she did it when she was just just under two and I and it was exactly the same it, you know it was so mirrored to what she did in in utero and the youngest it has ADHD and that kid did somersaults until until room wouldn't let him yeah so I definitely think there's it's incredible so like my daughter's really stubborn and she's been stubborn since the day she was born. She was really late. She didn't want to come out. 
And when she came out, she looked. I'll, I'll show you a picture of her when she was born. She looks furious. <laughs> she, she's just like, what is going on? Did I not tell you I was busy? Like, she just was like, she, she, it was really scary at the beginning because she didn't really cry. She didn't cry at all. It was silent. I was like, what's wrong with her? They're like, nothing's wrong with her. She's just really angry to be born. Yeah. Um, and she's been stubborn ever since. Uh, you can't, although she's very kind and you can, you know, if you ask her to do something, she'll do it. But she's stubborn and she like, her favourite thing is, I'll do it. I'll do it myself. I'll put on my socks. I'll put on my oh, jumper. Oh, I love it. And then she spends 20 minutes trying to put on her jumper or whatever. So she was born that way. And now we're like, oh, like, this is what we're going to have to with. He is super chill. Um, yeah. He was like a mole when he was born. He didn't open his eyes for two weeks. He was like, that's just Really? Cool. Yeah, he just was like Stevie Wonder. Um, he was just like, and he was really chill. Um, just feed me. Pick me up and I'll be picked up. You know, put me down for a nap when I'm tired. Let me put anything I want in my mouth. And he's fine. Um, and so he's, they're not opposites, but they're different. Mm. But it's weird how innate it is. The we haven't done anything to encourage this behaviour. It's, it's, like, it's like we have to work around them. And I wasn't expecting that for children. I was like, I'm going to train them. I'm going to do this. They're going to be polite. They're going to be well-mannered. No, no, no. They come out how they come out. Uh, yeah. yeah. No. Definitely. I still, my 12-year-old... Still doesn't have the instinct to apologize when he's done something wrong. Like the other two, I'll stand there and I'll sort of look at you know he'll do something and go well, and I'll just look at you like what? I'm like well, he's like what? I'm like sorry mum. He's like oh right yeah sorry mum. Still twelve years in can't, can't doesn't think you know the other two totally get. You know, it's funny, isn't it? Because you think, how can, I, how can I teach them? You think maybe this is it? Maybe it's just, this there's is some as things as it gets. that kids will learn and pick up. Hmm. And some things that they won't. I wanted to ask you about your life before comedy. Because like me, you had a career. Before, I did. What was your comedy. career? I, was, um, I described myself as a project manager. I had loads of jobs. But the last thing I did before I sort of quit was um, I worked in planning. And I worked in large-scale infrastructure. So I helped build, wow. build stuff, big things. But I wasn't in construction. I was in like the paperwork side of mm. it. And that's what I did for two or three years um, before I finished. But you had a proper job. You had a proper job too. I did have a couple proper jobs. I did, um, I went to uni and did biology and pathology and things like that because I loved it. I love forensics and pathology and all of that. And then off the back of that, I ended up in a PhD in viruses. In viral bioinformatics. Well, how handy is that? Right? I know. Boom. Um, mic drop. And uh, and so I, I ended up in virology and I did a bit of a postdoc after that. And it, But I had quite a successful PhD and had written some papers and, you know, got to travel and all the rest of it, which was amazing. But by the time I'd finished doing the PhD, I was also pretty much a full-time professional comedian. So I had a choice. And the choice between 10 hours a day in the lab and 20 minutes at night on stage... Mm for me was a no-brainer and I went into comedy but then I had a baby got bored at home with baby like my I just felt like my brain was melting like I love my daughter but at 10 months she did not hold good conversation <laughs> and so I went back to school did a master's in forensics and then ended up getting a job for the serious fraud office working in IT forensics and I ended up there for three years and in between there I think I had another kid must have been at the end of the masters I definitely had a, two kids going into the series fraud often three kids coming out so I popped out a few more kids my second one wasn't planned 
So my first one was planned, and my third one was planned, but the second one was like, woohoo, surprise, and that was the boy. That was the boy that was like, I didn't want a boy, but then it was my fault for not planning it, right? Right, but that's he, the universe saying you're getting a boy. Well, the yeah. universe was saying this baby's going to be born whether you like it or not, because I was, had that contraception thing in your arm. Yeah, I'm scared of that. That's yeah. why That's why I'm still on the pill, because I feel like I'm, I, I'm taking something. It yeah. is going into well, my bloodstream. The arm yeah. one is progesterone only, and I think that I'm too like fertile for progesterone only because it doesn't stop you ovulating. It just kind of bumps things up a bit. Yeah. To, you know. Yeah, it does, isn't it? Isn't that? I know. Silly mummy. Silly me. Like, yeah. yeah. Another boy in the world. You can't stop us. No. You can't stop the So that one was meant to be. And then off the back of that, because of the timing between the first and the second one, I decided to have the third one at a similar... Okay, so Sirius Fraud Office, can you talk about your work? Uh, I mean, well, I mean, Sirius Fraud Office is a law, is law enforcement department, civil service and law enforcement. What? It sounds like you're choking, but there's no, nothing that's in just, your mouth. That's his noise. That's is that your his, noise? That's his yeah. noise. Yeah. Here, put, put, take your feet and push against the table. Yeah. That's it. Get, yes, get them legs working. There we go. Let's do that. Some exercise. So, uh, so they deal with complex fraud. So anything that involves, like, for example, multiple countries or high amounts of money, like really high amounts of money that the police uh, might not have, you know, because all police departments have fraud investigation departments. City of London specifically has another fraud investigation department that works very closely with the SFO. And so I was in the IT forensic department. So whenever we go and like search someone's house, uh, we would take all the ele- they would go in and take all the paper evidence, and we would go in and take all the electronic evidence. Wow, phones, computers, that kind of thing. And Here. did you enjoy working there? I I did and I didn't. Like I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the, the a lot of the people there, but it was a it's a very hierarchical civil service structure. And I found that really difficult. I found it really difficult. Um, you know, I would be rubbish in the military. You know, sitting, you're sitting there at the bottom of the chain. You come in with quite... Often those of us that were newly hired had the most up-to-date information about what's going on out there, yeah. technologically speaking. And we were told, no, you have to do it our way. And we're like, but the best way is that. And they'd be like, no, but this is our way. Oh, you might want a nap. Is we'll it nappy time? Nap. Is it nap? Sleep time? Is it nap time, little boy? But are you too excited? Are we excited? Are we excited with dancing? Dancing. That's the wrong, that's the wrong, yeah, dancing queen? You dancing queen? He's a dancing queen. You be whatever queen. you want. He's got all of his sister's old clothes, and he's oh, got things you? that like, say, little princess. Are you a little <laughs> we call princess? Him little yeah, princess. you are. You, you, you be a princess. Yeah, you, you own that. And he's so gentle as well. It. It's like, it's yeah. actually more suited to him than yeah, it was You there. say this as he's grabbing my <laughs> face. Oh, yeah, he's so yeah. gentle. But my daughter was, everyone <laughs> said, oh, well, you know, you're having a boy. Well, be careful. They're really rowdy. Be careful. And I was like, my daughter is rowdy. What am I going to have if he's more rowdy than her? You know what? Having an older girl, though, really shakes the boys. I think it's great. <clears throat> I always wanted an older brother so I could date his friends. But actually, <laughs> now that I'm the mom, I'm like, no, no, no. Older girl is great. But she t- sometimes is too capable. So she d- is so good at, you know, being the second mom in the house. Yeah. That the boys end up getting away with not doing as much I think my daughter's going to be like that so I'm going to be careful to make sure this little boy is in the kitchen too he can do laundry make his bed yes. things like that you take, you, take, you take care of yourself that's right be that's our job it's our job now to raise good men 
Yeah, we I have to. Really it starts important. in the home. It starts in the home. It really does. We can't and to make sure that we're critical thinkers, so we can understand the way they've been unduly influenced by the world. You know. Mm. Um, yeah, he likes cheeks. He likes cheeks, beards, and earrings. So you've done very well to not wear any jewelry today, because that would have. Oh, and oh, I that just shaved my beard. So, <laughs> so that would have gone. So do you, uh, civil service? I used to work in the civil service. Oh, really? Um, oh, it's awful. The hierarchy is awful, and the amount mm. of people that are there, and they're paid a lot of money to not do a lot of yes. work. Yes, and I couldn't it, you deal would, with that. You would not believe the way these places are run, and not even the civil service. I worked in local government for years as well, and mm. just like there's a lot of people out there on huge salaries, and their job is really to get away with not doing anything. It's actually extraordinary how accurate that statement is. Is that what that was your is that what your experience was like in the civil service? It well, you know it's dead man's shoes, pretty mm. much. Like there's no way to get rid of someone in a post if they're not doing a good job. As long as they're not doing a bad job. Which means that you couldn't move up. Even you know, so also you would look at your career going, I will never progress in this as long you know, okay, my boss above me is only forty five, so he's got however many years left, twenty years to retirement. It's possible I stay at this level for the next 20 years, even though I do a better job than my boss does. Or you facilitate them. What I found was mm. I was in positions where I was facilitating the work of people who were on like 30 or 40k more than me. And yeah. it was like, if I wasn't here, this none of this would work. And yet I'm not being remunerated in according to my contributions. Yeah. Um, and like you said, they're not, they're not, you know, people live till 80 these, these days. So they're not going anywhere for a very long time. And I also found it, I've also found the workplaces just to be really racist. And people wouldn't think that about the public sector. They think that happens in like banking or whatever. But I just found these places to be very much, if the face fits, you shoot up. And if they don't fit, you still scurry around and do work. And you have to be grateful for it. That was my experience. No, you know what, that, I, I can see that. I can see that happening in those, in those institutions because also there's not a lot of oversight in civil service. Not that I suppose there is an oversight in banking, but in, 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 you know, in private sector where the aim is make this company money. Mm. fundamentally you're good if you are a good worker and you're going to make the company money that's going to have value now i'm not saying that there is that they're colorblind there either yeah but in civil service it's it is a very mate it's a very nepotistic kind of like i get on with you if i promote you you're going to be i'm going to be spending four days a week with you so i'm going to promote you yeah. because you and I look the same or are the same or similar and that's also what I found is that I found that at the top end it was very samey in ter- what was going on and and you know in a lot of um, and there's just nothing you can do about it at the bottom I mean at one point they decided to renovate the entire SFO so they called in contractors and all the rest of it and at one point I remember sitting in a meeting where one of these external contractors came in and said okay we're going to cut this particular service to the employees and it was some sort of education service and it was only 300 quid per person per year and there's only about maximum 400 employees okay so whatever the math is on that 12,000 a year this but this contractor was costing us a thousand pounds a day. Yeah. Like, so two weeks to you, 
not working and we could keep our education supplement but you've come in at a rate of a thousand pounds a day to tell us this is where to save money that is such a common story in the public sector i had jobs where i realized that if i didn't go in every day for a month six months a year the service would be fine <laughs> Do you know what i mean like they'd created these posts i'm just moving this they created these jobs and of which i benefited from obviously but i was like why does this job exist because i swear to god if mm. i didn't turn up for work you know, bins would still get emptied, parking would still get enforced, you know, schools would still operate, libraries would operate. Like, what What am I doing? What, and that was, that thought process was a big part of me wanting to get into comedy and to right. do something slightly, Different. yeah, just do something where at the end of the day I could go to sleep and be like, oh, this is worthwhile. It felt like stealing. It felt like stealing from the public. That's what it felt like. It is, though. It is, I mean, it's the same way. Wasn't it Tony Blair that reorganised the NHS and put in all these extra layers of management? that still exists today, mm. but just said, how can we add bureaucracy yeah. and get a whole bunch of people that don't need to be meddling with the NHS in at the NHS, you know, get the money for nothing. Yeah. Did it need fixing? Probably. I'm sure that some fixing was needed, but I'm not sure that that was the answer. And I, I'm not against administration as well, and I'm not against business consultancy and things like that. So that, that kind of stuff is also needed against, like, operational stuff to make sure it all works. Yeah. yeah, so the public sector was frustrated, and that's why I, I, really bo- I was really bothered with the whole narrative when Jeremy Corbyn was Labour leader. I can't make everything like this. No way. Because I've worked in it so much. I don't. They're re- you know, I don't want these guys. But, I mean, but that's the other thing is that, is that when you, in Singapore, if you work for the government, that means you were talking your class. Like right. the government comes in and goes, we get first pick of the best people. And they pay well and they have pensions and they reward them. Same in, in uh, Luxembourg, if you see a BMW, they were telling me, oh, it's probably a teacher. And I went, what? And they went, yeah, it's good to be a teacher in Luxembourg, but you got to earn it. Everything's upside down here. It's like it's to serve down. to serve the public here. You sh- you absolutely right. You should like police officers. You don't need GCSEs to become a police officer. It's insane. No, you need to, you need to have a certain amount of. It's a street smarts, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. You don't have to be academic per se, but it's the same with everything. Is that we 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 seem to think oh because it's public money we can't spend too much money on it. I'm going no. I'm happy for you to spend good money. On good service. Yeah, we want and, the know, best people working for us. Let the let the idiots work for Santander. Do you know what I mean? We want yeah. the smart people working for us. We want the smart people doing the teaching and being the doctors, and we want to keep them. And we're not paying like the NHS. I think that the doctors and nurses are some of the lowest pays in the world for for medicine. But I also think there's a class system here. So a, a lot the people in the civil service will say, "Oh, we do get the best," but their the definition of what the best is, is based on, you know, who does a civil service fast track scheme and who goes to what university and, you know, what public school do they go to as opposed to what are their competencies. That fast track thing, I try, I, I bought a book looking at the tests and, um, and this was before I was diagnosed autistic, could not understand the questions. I was looking at it going, what are you asking? And it was some kind of skill set of, can you politically read between the lines on this article like it was a very it's a very strange skill set that they're looking for but it is hey it is essentially how can you take this piece of information and then twist it into what we want it to sound like yeah yeah. and i went that's what you're looking for that i'm not your girl i'll give you facts and i'll help people understand facts but don't give me facts and go how can we make this fit our narrative what i didn't like in, my, in the final few years of me working in the public sector. I actually ended up working in for a private company that was contracted by the public sector. But what I didn't like was the fact that we never did anything because it was the right thing to do. We did something because it protected the government's reputation. Okay, so yeah. at that point I was building roads or I was in the, you know, I was part of a massive system that was building roads. And like, 
this is stuff, this is the kind of thing that transforms places, you know, it, it creates jobs, it creates housing, it creates opportunities, it also ruins the environment, it does really positive things and really negative things, and you've got to be really careful how you do these things, and not barely, I can't think of one decision that was taken for practical reasons, it was always political, oh we're going to do that even though it's harmful because that guy wants it, oh we're not going to do that yeah. even though it's beneficial because that guy doesn't want it, and it's like, but this is mm. not this is not the purpose of development, this is not the purpose of, of public construction, right, this is how, this is, we build things because they work for the people, and yeah. the people pay my wages, so why aren't, why aren't we doing things for the people, and that's how this country works, so the class system is a terrible thing, people, we talk about race a lot in this country, the class system is more damaging, you know. Oh, the class, the class system is far more damaging because you can, you can do being you. I think it's easier to escape the barriers around your race than it is to escape the barriers around your class in this country. If I'm honest. I, oh, I 100% agree with you there on the class system, and I'm always very grateful that I'm slightly outside of it because I don't look like I come from here. Yeah. And I don't sound like I come from here, even though I was born here. <coughs> It means that people don't automatically position me in the class system. Do you find, do you think it's class right now? Because, I mean, this is uh, one of the things we're both finding is, is that right now in the media, which is where we work, really, they're now actively looking to tick those boxes, aren't they? They're actively looking to tick diversity boxes. Absolutely. I was really busy during lockdown because someone murdered George Floyd. Do you know what I mean? Like, I have to reconcile myself to the fact that everyone suddenly thought, oh, Athena come right jokes and in particularly political jokes mm. and we'll get her to write those jokes for us because someone's still in his neck for nine minutes and that's a horrible thing to position to be put in to be like yeah oh you but the only thing that that makes me feel better is I, well, i'm in these rooms now and i'm like i should have been in these rooms years ago you know so i do feel like i don't have to justify myself oh to- but, agreed agreed and i'm in a similar situation because of a viral pandemic has killed four million people worldwide and i have a degree in virology but i'm now a comedian mm. it's a very similar thing it's like the usp isn't it it's like, oh great come oh on, yeah come you take a box board. that's yeah. useful but with complete disregard for the fact that actually the work you know now some of it to be fair some of it people are like oh Rhea, you're a scientist can we get you on in that capacity as a comedian but also a scientist Fine, I hear that. Great. But sometimes I'm being asked to do the same job that I could have done three, four, five years ago. Yeah. You know, come do this show. We just need you to be... Well, most of them, it's we need you to be a woman uh, because that's still... A thing. The, the first box to tick. Mm. Uh, we need you to be a woman. Um, I now... We need you to have a face of colour. Okay, tick. And then we need you to be funny. Because Where's your family from? Huh. Well, so my mother was an American. She's now Dutch. My father's German. He's also now Dutch. Uh, my sister is German-American from my parents' original um, uh, nationalities. Uh, they, My parents live in Holland because they're Dutch. I grew up a little bit in California, England, and Holland. Came back for uni because it was free for me because I'm British. So it's that, you know, my mother's Filipino. My father is white but white German, but not that kind of German. And, uh, you know, just, just, I did, you know, I looked into it, especially when it became, well, I've always known that my grandfather worked for a medic team on the Eastern Front. And I was always very secure in knowing that while everyone else is going, the Germans were this, the Germans were that, like, first of all, not all Germans. The army was very different to the Nazi army. They were two different groups but also that my family in particular he helped he was uh the sort of second in command to 
a, a doctor and so he wasn't himself medically trained but he would often like have to help in the in in the operations or if they had to suddenly move because the, the front was coming close to their medical station he'd help pack it up and move them so and they would help everybody they would help the russians they would help ukrainians they would help everyone sorry i just no it's interesting because very resistance in germany isn't one that's always always told but there's always resistance and we need to yes. actually take solace in that because um i think people when they say we're becoming a fascist country are really really extreme i think that that's it's a bit too early to say that but i think we should definitely say that there were negative things happening now and we have to resist that in whatever way we can and if there was resistance I, in nazi germany there's going to be you know we should be able to resist stuff here bearing in mind we still have a lot of our freedoms yeah well i think what's happening here is that what we're seeing and realizing and this is people only live one lifetime mm. and you and, and as much as you can read and educate yourself about what happened in the past your own experiences inform you and we can only be experienced by one lifetime so what we're seeing is human nature resurface over and over and over again mm. and a lot of human nature is to protect the self to protect what's familiar to be you know to to fear other and i think that at a basic level especially in in a, a lack of education that's what you get and i'm not saying that everybody that feels this way is uneducated but they can go hand in hand and and certainly in in a lack in you know in a dearth of education about these sorts of things you're going to see human nature triumph over rational yeah. education of course you are and i think that's what we see i mean we've just had i mean this pandemic is a perfect example of where we've seen something catastrophic on a scale that we cannot begin to comprehend but caused by something so small that some people that you can understand why people go i don't think it exists because there's no way to tangibly war is tangible mm. you know that war is happening but a viral a war against a virus you can't you don't even know is it or and is we've it always had viruses right like what's the big deal i don't even i even have sympathy with anti-vaxxers because think about it we've had like viruses and diseases since forever right so mm. if it was that easy if all you had to do was just spend lots of money and make and make a vaccine why do we still have sleeping sickness why do we still have malaria right so i understand people going well hold on a minute 18 months ago there was a thing couldn't last and now you're saying oh we've got a vaccine for it so why don't we have vaccines for everything yeah you know and like, why was it so fat and why was it developed so quickly and everything else and again it's i i know i know being a scientist you know i was abreast of when we had the first sars outbreak when we had the mers outbreak we've actually been researching coronavirus vaccines for almost 20 years mm. since sars came along the first time and indicated that actually coronaviruses are something we should be paying attention to as a species of virus and and so when we got to this one and everyone went that was too fast we go well no actually that's 20 years in the making and what and then and then because we have a world stage where everybody where coronavirus is at where SARS-2 COVID was everywhere we actually were able to conduct very comprehensive vaccine trials people go that was too fast it should have taken that long no no the reason that most vaccines take years to develop is because in order to test their efficacy you have to have to not on purpose but naturally wait for any of your test subjects to be exposed to it you can't literally say, okay, I've, I've given you a test vaccine for Ebola. Can you please go and try and catch Ebola? You can't do that. That's not ethical. Yeah. So you have to wait and you, until that person might possibly be exposed to it and then go, did they catch it? Right. It's risky, risky work. But in this pandemic, we've, take, we've been able to basically take anybody and go, 
do you want a trial vaccine? And people have been very willing, but B, we don't have to wait long to see if they've been exposed to it because it's everywhere. In London, I think one in 20 people had it at one point. <clears throat> like, you know, or well, even less well, than that. Well, we're getting there yeah. now again. We are getting up there in terms which, of... Which is mad, actually, uh, because I've got I've been double jabbed, but I'm... Well, is he asleep? He's <laughs> playing around. So I'm going to... if he, Oh, I think he's falling asleep now. Incredible. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. It's just like do, do you know what? Wonder my, my baby. My daughter was such a crazy baby. This is like this is some god saying, Well done, Athena. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you right? if you lived with that child, well done. This is your reward. Um but he's 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 just phenomenally like sweet and simple, you know, like, oh okay, I'm on the bed in my blanket, I'm tired, I'll have a nap until 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 feeding time now. Yeah. Um, so you might get to give him a bottle if he wakes up before you go. How exciting is that? <laughs> um, nothing but there's not nothing beats a baby suckling. Yeah, you know it's I mean? nice. Yeah, because like he's he's on the breast and bottle, and we're thinking about stopping his breastfeeding now. And I'm like, I don't really want. What? What's what? this? We? What do you mean we? I, you, exactly. It's you. You yes, get the choice. It's me. It is Who's me. Who's we? Some dude that I live with. No, no, guy. I'm sorry. Some dude does not. Man. No, no dude gets to go. Excuse me, but can I have your tits back? Nah, nah, nah. No, yeah. you do what you you and and baby want that's, until you and baby are happy. That's to. the hardest thing about being in a relationship. Like I personally believe that with parenting, you have a primary carer. Unless you're one of those mad people who have a 50-50 relationship, which is like, good luck to you guys. I don't know how you do it. But when you've got one parent who does like the majority of the childcare, I do think that means the majority of the decisions lies with that parent because what has to, because whatever you do has to work for them. You know, it has to facilitate. Mm. And I've worked, so I didn't really have any maternity leave. So I was literally, I was in writer's rooms, just like this baby hanging off me. Mm. Like, and especially because everything was at home. It was great. So I could do everything via Zoom. But the point I'm making is, is like, it's weird because I don't want to be old fashioned, but I actually think, yeah, mummy does know best, actually. Like, I do think, mom, you know. But it, I mean, it's your body. I can't imagine how anyone else could think. No one else has a right to decide when you're done breastfeeding other than you and, and baby. Yeah, I agree with that. It's true. I'm just trying to be like, you know. No. Nice. No, 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 I'm not having, no, sorry. We've come too far. For nice to come in, yeah. Well, I was being nice, no. It's true. And you know that you know that uh, the Western world is, and in the UK is part of this. If you go to the World Health Organization and look up breastfeeding rates, we have one of the lowest rates and longevity. And it's really sad because it's one of the best things to do. If, like mm. if you've got no no money for formula and you've got the time, then yeah. problem solved, right? Yeah, and uh, it's and antibodies and everything else. Yeah, you know, especially and, right now where antibodies are kind of. Kind of hot thing right yeah, now. Yeah, kind of handy. You're a scientist. You know what you're talking about. I'll just play yeah. this back whenever I get a hard time. Yeah. But the biggest thing is like I like sleeping with him. So oh, I kind yeah. of slept with all of them. Oh, it's the best, isn't it? And they I they, they it. wake up and you just stick a breast in their mouth and you fall back asleep again. And you don't have to go upright because that's the other thing about oh gosh, now we're getting nerding out on parenting. <laughs> but but I, now first of all, when you co-sleep with baby, it's important that neither of you, anyone in the bed, is not on any kind of drugs or alcohol or anything else. Mm. That's the key, and that's where you find people are like I'm going to roll on top of them, I'm going to float, make them, you know, I'm going to suffocate them. Oh, Breastfeeding mothers don't fall asleep deep enough to do that as long as they don't have any other drugs in their system. 
I wish, okay, mate. So that's, <laughs> right? I wish. I, uh, it's like, like, I'm not even a bit of cocaine. I've got, I've got no. cupboards full of wine that I'm just like staring, collecting dust right now. Oh, yeah. you'll catch up. Don't worry. It's, it's, when they're teenagers, you will definitely catch up on all of that. So don't worry about that. But co-sleeping is amazing because one of the things that makes newborn parents so tired is the uprightness. Is It's going from lying down to going upright. Yeah. And then that's flicks a switch in your brain and then you're awake and then you you know you're then you have to get back into that sleep with you when you co-sleep and you never actually sit up and you know then then you get back to sleep a lot faster and it's a lot healthier for you so we used to do what we would do is my husband would when the baby woke up my husband would get upright change the nappy I would never wake up I would never go upright and then he'd give the baby back to me so he would then then be able to go back to sleep again and not have to worry about baby. And then I would do the other half. Do you know we split yeah, it that way? Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's I hadn't I hadn't thought about the upright and thing because with my daughter. So I was living with my mum mm. uh, when my for a year with my daughter. So it was just me and her and my mum. So I had full control. And my my daughter never took to the cot ever. If you put her in the cot, she would act like the cot was on fire before her back even touched the mattress. She'd be like. So she always slept with me. And so whenever people were like, um, wow, it must be really hard being a parent, not getting any sleep. I'd be like, I'm getting more sleep now than I ever got, right? Because I'm not working and I sleep with her. And she used to just like, she learned even how to like lift up my top. And like, I'd just be like, oh, okay, she's having something to eat now. And I just sort of can't be half asleep next to her. And it was great, you know, but with this one, I'm getting up to feed him. Um, he, he comes in like, what happens is he goes into his cot and at about four in the morning, I think, fuck this. <laughs> he comes out and you have to stick him in the bed. Um, no, but, yeah. but you should get, so you should get your husband to get him out of the cot and you never get up because you still have to kind of be awake until they're finished feeding because you probably have to adjust things and if anything drips or whatever. Yeah. So I would always be semi, uh, you know, conscious during the feed and I wouldn't go back to sleep until the feed was finished. Yeah. But because, you know, but yeah, you're half asleep. Dozing. Yeah, you you're know. Dozing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But because my husband would do the up and down stuff between us, we got enough sleep. Yeah. I hadn't, yeah, that's a really, that's a really good way. That's a really good way to distribute the labor because with breastfeeding, mm. so much of our onus is on the mother. It can be hard to understand mm. when you're not the mother. Okay, how do I contribute? Like, what what do I do nappies. here? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah nappies. nappies. How were you brought up culturally? Were you British, Filipino, German? Uh, no, we weren't. We were always other. Yeah. So we very much were other. So, my early childhood was in California where I didn't feel that we stuck out that much because Filipinos in California, everywhere. My parents were mixed, but then again, there were mixed, you know, that again was quite common at that point, mixed parents. So it wasn't again that we were the only ones. Then we moved back to England where we were the American family because we all just come from America. I spoke with an American accent, my mother, my father's German, but he's just my dad. So mm. I never, he doesn't have a strong German accent. He's a very mild German accent. So I think we were the American family, but I was definitely the brown girl. I was, you know, there's only me and Cherry Brown. She was <laughs> the, uh, the black girl in the school and me. And that was it in the whole village school. 
Then we moved to the Netherlands where everybody was different. But then you had, so we, so after identifying as the American family in the UK, because we'd come from California, we then moved to the Netherlands and when I went to an American school where there were actual American families, because then suddenly at the American school where both parents were American and their companies would fly them back and forth to Texas every Christmas and summer, we were the European family because my dad was German yeah. and my mom was American, but like she'd lived abroad. So she wasn't culturally a soccer mom or anything. She was already someone who'd lived in England before because I was born there and, and was, you know, and had lived in New York and everything else and had married a German. So then we were the outsiders again because we were Europeans because most, because in the Netherlands there was an American school, there was a British school, there was a German school, there's an international school, there's all the local Dutch schools. So the Americans were the in crowd. They're the ones that maintained the American high school structures and social networks and everything else. Cause they're like, we get how this works. They made up just over 50% of the school population. And then, and then 40 odd percent was everybody else from all the different countries in the world. All their parents are moving every couple of years. So they're keeping their kids in an American education to keep it consistent. But mm from all over the place and then the lowest rung of that ladder is anyone who could otherwise have gone to a local school yeah. and it's like why are you in our school why aren't you just going to the dutch school because your dad's german and you go because i don't speak dutch and they're like yeah but you can learn so that i was at the bottom of that rung then oh that must have been that must have been really difficult for a young person it was i mean there were a number of issues i had in high school but also being two years younger than everyone else it turns out doesn't help either no oh and they and they, yeah. they treat you like they must treat you like it's almost like having a little sister and being like a slightly no you like your little sisters i was the one that you just sort of never invited anywhere oh that's quite lonely what did your parents do for jobs Is that why they put to necessitate my the mom my mom was a computer programmer and my father works in logistics but it was my father's job that moved us because his job in California was going to move to North Carolina both of my parents said we don't want to live in North Carolina and then he had a job offer the original job he was doing back in England when I was born opened up again so he went to work for that company again and then within that company got promoted to a Europe head of Europe something head of European logistics so we moved to the continent so he could logistics <laughs> he could do do his thing do you think about the way your childhood and the way you raise your children? So do you think, oh, I'm going to do things differently because of that? Um, I no, mo mostly the same, mostly doing things the same, which is I'm Asian. So that means high expectations, lots of activities. You will be skilled. You will, you will, you will perform. You will do well. <laughs> All of that. The only difference was my mother is also most likely on the spectrum, not diagnosed, but very likely where I got her from. And she wasn't very good at praise and at showing love. She was good at showing expectation. So she would, um, you know, if you came in with an A, she'd be like, well, I expect you to get an A. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, why would I say, well done, you got an A? Just be like, good, okay, let's go set the table. And so that's the one thing I, I wanted to do differently for my kids is go, Yes. And also the other problem is, is in the British system, in an American system, 90% above is an A, 80 to 90 is a B, 70 to 80. And it's very, very straightforward and prescribed. We don't do curves. We don't do grading on a curve. And whereas in the UK, 70% is good. Yeah. And I could never, I, never, I was like, 70%? That's a C. And they're like, no, it's really good if you got about 70%. 
and then curve everything so that whoever got the 70 got the A and everyone else was below that. I don't agree with that at all. And so I've had to adjust my under, you know, I've had to adjust for that because of course my kids will come home with 65% or even sometimes 50% and go, no, this was one of the highest grades in the class. And I have to go, okay, well then well done. So what you've just hit the nail on something that's hit the nail on the head on something that's really important to me. There's a lot of discussion or there was recently a bit of discussion about white working class kids and, mm. and their performance in schools compared to children of immigrants or second generation immigrants. And what people have to realize is that our parents come from different educational expectations. Mm. So I went to a school that was mixed, but it was majority white, okay. When my white friends went home with a B or a C or a D, that was fine. If I brought a B or a C home, mm. that wasn't fine. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is to do with having experienced a different educational structure and different educational expectations. And we don't work within what British schools expect of us. Actually, we work to higher expectations, which are basically what our parents mm. expect of us. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, conservatives and other people will say, oh, you know, this is, an, this is evidence that, uh, you know, the fact that there's white working class disparity in mm. education, that was evidence of too much concentration and Black Lives Matter and too much this on black people and too much this on Asian people. It's none of that. Actually, it's just our parents going, don't you dare show me a B. <laughs> you know, don't you dare come home with, with, with that. We come from uh, different expectations. Um, and I think it's almost like, you know something? You could learn from us. That you could actually learn from us in terms of how you, you know, I was educated at home, but I went to school. How does it make any sense? How can I be home educated and school educated at the same time? But when I went home and I was allowed, I I still remember my schedule, get home from school and between like, you know, 3.30 and 6, Mm. that was our time. Snacks, dinner, watch cartoons, between 6 and 9, study time. We had our own textbooks. We had our own exercise books and we were given our exercises to do and my dad when he was around would mark them if it wasn't him uh, my brother but would do it but what was it like English and math again yeah it, it was English math science and stuff sometimes it would be creative stuff so we'd, be, we'd have to write our own stories but it was you know and you, you, you go to the bloody you go Waterstones you can buy these books you know yeah. you just buy they're just yeah. normal like, and you just we'd work through the exercises and mm. some of them we couldn't do we'd need a Bunsen burner and so whatever but we, we would do that and we did that until um, maybe well, I think we stopped, you know, we did that until 13, 14, maybe. So from primary school up until my 13, 14 years of age, mm. we were, we were, it was rigid too. You know, six to nine every evening, doing extra work on top of your schoolwork was mad. But at the same time, on Saturdays, we'd be kicked out of the house and we weren't expected back in. So we had that balance of... Well, that's, it's balanced because yeah. all of my kids had, I would always give them stuff, primary school, extra stuff. Yeah. Oh, Especially yeah. over the summer. How can you spend six weeks not... Not refreshing your skills. I remember going on holiday. It was on the first holidays we went on with, with my mum and my dad took our textbooks to the airport. <laughs> you know, you didn't pack these. You know, you got to put your textbooks and in, in your books in your bags. And yeah, it was, it was unthinkable that we would go that long without without any kind of study. No, uh, mine, mine have always had something. And I think this summer... If anyone knows anyone, I'm looking, you know, I'm looking for a tutor for the 12-year-old because I, I want him... I want someone to go over a lot of the material from this year because this year's been an yeah. absolute shit show for kids. And, and my daughter just finished, quote, air quote, GCSEs, whatever it is that she will carry with her for life. I mean, And actually, they did do quite a lot of it. Like, I don't feel too worried. I know that they did not get tested on all the material and that a lot of the GCSEs got shaved down. But I feel overall she's had some, you know, there's skills that you need. You need, Obviously... 
you know, at GCSE level, if you're going to continue in science, you need that base in science. If you're going to continue in math, you need that base in math. With history, it's how many different subjects, how many different things can we learn? Mm. And then if you want to continue in it, then there's how do you write these essays and how do you represent, you know, represent source material and so on and so forth. But I feel like she got the skills, like how do you write a good history essay, even if she didn't study as many different eras or yeah. as many different topics, which is always going to be the shame of it. But it's the skills that come out of it. I mean, most of us aren't using the knowledge from our GCSEs. We're using the skills that we've built upon since then. And I feel that she got those. So, you know, like that the, for that, I'm grateful. But my son's about to start GCSEs. And how is he going to find those if they expect them in two years time to do full GCSEs as they were pre-pandemic mm. without the year eight and nine base mm. that he should have had because they've missed out on what? a third at least a third of their education some people more than that and this is when things start to get more complex you know you start you learn the periodic table you know science isn't just oh this turns pink it's yeah. like you know it becomes technical almost uh, and, and it's scary and i think we as parents and carers have to take responsibility because the government's not doing it i've always said this about the pandemic don't listen to the government that actually make your own assessment as to what's necessary uh, and what you you know what you said that you're looking for a tutor I mean, I'll, I think that's really wise because there, I don't think there's going to be much additional teaching coming out of the schools. I've been reading stuff about summer schools and stuff, but how are the teachers supposed to do that? Oh, you know, well, the teachers have that $1.5 billion where they said they, the school czar, God, all these czars, the school czar guy said, we need $15 billion to fix this for the children. And the government went, you can have one point five. It's insane. And it's for yeah. tutoring hours, but only for some children, only for like the really disadvantaged. Those that can <clears> afford to pay for it need to pay for their own tutors, but everyone else can. But I worked out, so they talked about how many hours and everything. 10 quid an hour is what the government has allocated. Do you know a good tutor for 10 quid an hour? I don't know any I good tutors for 10 quid an I hour. Get, I can't get a babysitter for that. Right. And that's for like right. a baby. And, that's, and now they're going to hand this out. And yeah. it's going to end, you know, and then that it's going to end up in the teacher's pockets when really the teachers don't need to be tutoring. The teachers need to be doing, you know, doing their teaching and whatever. And they've already got a full-time schedule. Mm. But where's this tutor? I, I don't know where they think they're going to find these tutors. I for know, 10 or an honestly, hour. I know it's difficult. And I know I'm probably in a, a, a privileged position to say this, but I will take responsibility for my children's education. I don't trust this government to do it. Oh, completely. From what I've been seeing over the past, I mean, 10 years, for 10 years, everything they've ever said on education, they've said in education, I've disagreed with wholeheartedly. So when they go to school, I'll say, do what it takes to pass the test, because at the end of the day, this is a system and you need to align yourself with the system. Mm. When they come home, I'm going to be like, this is, this is, this is the real world and this is what I'm going to teach it everything from um, in fact I was talking yesterday with with, um, with the person I was who was my guest about about books and uh, a, a report came out last week about how 1% of books in studied with GCSE are written by people of colour and I was like go upstairs into my daughter's bedroom or go and look at my bookshelves upstairs and see if there's 1% of books there just because the schools mm. are teaching it doesn't mean that's all the kids have got to read you know, if we no, just if we trust our schools to give our children a, a rounded and effective education and only trust them to do that, you're outsourcing a massive amount of responsibility to a very reckless government at the moment, a hugely reckless government. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know, like I just anyone who's listening who's got kids, don't 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 just say they've gone to school now. Everything's sorted. It's not sorted. They're, no. they're being neglected intellectually. You, but actually, I mean, you know that I was talking, when my kids were in primary school, I was talking to the primary school teachers there, and more and more 
children are arriving in nappies yes, at I heard four this. Yeah. and they're expecting the, the teachers to potty train their children. Now at nursery, yes, I think it's a huge part of it, but not at school. It's insane. I mean, I, you know, I my kids all went to nursery and it's a and and it's a homeschool relationship with the potty training. You have to work together with them. You can't expect your child to be in nursery for eight hours and not be potty trained. Right. But at school, they're there for other things. They were kids were coming in and they were still needing naps in the afternoon at four or five years old because they were still having naps. You know, which meant that the teachers had to so to go, no, no, I need you to stay awake after lunch. Come on, come imagine? on, come on. <laughs> Head on the table. Yeah, no, they were it's falling insane. asleep on the carpet. Yeah. They were sleeping on the carpet because they weren't sure. And, uh, you know, how to use a toilet and everything else. And the expectation that school is everything. And I think that, you know, I'm one of the, there's, I'm, now my kids are at secondary school. And I worry every time I send an email, I'm that parent that they go, oh, Rhea's emailed again. Rhea wants something. But a lot of the teachers tell me that they don't get any support from some people at home that they can't reach a parent there are parents that don't care yeah like just I, go whatever i pay my taxes you teach my children i've got things to do a lot of parents are busy or they had a negative experience themselves at yeah. school and and that carries over yes they're busy they're busy they have their own issues that they need to deal with you know, all sorts of reasons but i think that, i think what i find the, the conversation we're having at the moment particularly with with covid is is it the state or is it about personal responsibility should the state look after mm. us actually it's a combination of the two it's a partnership you know it's a partnership should should the nhs look after us or should we look after the nhs it's an absolute partnership it's a case of we have we have we are a very rich country we're rich because of what we did to other nations and we have all these institutions and we should expect them to handle their shit you should expect your teacher to deal to discipline your child to a certain extent and we should expect um our hospitals to treat mm. us when we're sick even during a pandemic however that should be facilitated by the personal responsibility we take for ourselves the responsibility we take to us children to to widen their um their, their, their reading for example or to discipline mm, them mm. or to potty train them you know or, or similarly to like look after our health so when we ask the NHS is better equipped to, to, to look after us when we're really sick um, so I, I always find it really extraordinary and we at these days more than ever we just like to park our park ourselves on a hill and stay there rather than saying actually maybe it's a combination mm. of things that are, are right And we've been recording for ages. I think we need to wrap it up. Otherwise, I'll be editing for ages. Although I could yeah. talk to you for like No, I mean, there's so hour. much stuff that we can yeah. keep going on this. I agree with you on the partnership. But also, I feel like it's it's the responsibility of those of us that can help mm. to make sure that we can help those that can't. And I know that's a very lefty, socialist uh, position to be in. But, there, you know, there's a lot of... I, I, I know a lot of libertarians that believe that the state needs to back off Mm. And, and and libertarians, I find that they tend to be successful in their chosen careers. They've bought their houses, you know, maybe their kids are in private school and the rest of it. And I go, I get that. I get why you want the state to back off. But I think that, that there are people who do need the state. And I think that there are situations where the state is needed. And then, as you said, it's the job of the people. You know, there must be some wiggle room, but... It's, like, it's from each according to ability, yeah? To each well, according to their communism. needs, right? That's but, communism. But as, a, as a concept, that's not too far away from what you've just said. It's like some people need assistance, some don't. So let the people who need the assistance have it and let the slack 
that is created to give them that assistance comes from the independent people who don't need it. That's that's the welfare state, well, isn't that, it? It is, but then that's where you get. But that's exactly what people object to: is why if I'm doing well and I'm paying, I'm paying for my own kids to go to school, I'm paying, you know, for private health care, mm. I'm sorting myself out. Why should I then pay a, up to fifty percent of what I earn to the state to take care of other people who haven't sorted their own? And, shit th- out? and that is exactly why, that's the argument. And the 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 counter argument to that is because it's like we can't all be like you we need lots of different kinds of people to make society work we need people right at the top Mm. to run british petroleum probably we need that we need people i don't like the top down analogy because it implies people on the bottom are lesser but i'll stick with it for now but and we need people right at the bottom ride bikes and deliver us our wagamamas the person who rides a bike around to deliver your wagamamas is not going to put their child into private school okay they are not going to be able to afford to the person who does that is not going to be able to have private health insurance or something so if you want these low-paid jobs to exist okay and you want people to exist and earn a living and live a happy life while servicing you you will have to subsidize the things they can't afford to pay for yeah yeah that's what that that's that's the argument and i totally and i think that's one of the really interesting things about this pandemic and i've said it a few times already on various plate and various platforms is that what we've really truly learned is who we actually need mm. to run this country. Who do we need? Well, obviously we need all of the healthcare workers. We need all of the bus drivers, train drivers. We need everyone who works in a supermarket. Mm. We need cleaners. Yeah. This has been for the, you know, the age of the cleaner in terms of people who know how to keep things sanitized. You know, people that we don't tend to see we don't tend to respect. We mm. don't tend to think deserve to be treated with respect. You know, the, you know, the, getting on a bus in where I grew up in Holland, you say hello and goodbye to the bus driver. Yeah, that is part of it. Is you go thank you as you get off the bus, and that I see that sometimes here, and that and that the the um, the driver the urge to do it is very strong. When I do, I'm not on buses very much, but when I do, I just want to thank you. Oh, people the do bus that is though. Empty, I see it. They yeah, do. Yeah. I see it too. And if the bus is empty and I know it'll be heard or seen, I'll definitely do it. I'll be like thank you. Mm. When the bus is empty, maybe on a night bus, not <laughs> so much. But um, but that's what we've learned. We've learned who. And what I found really interesting about the pandemic is we furloughed people in the middle. Furlough really ended up supporting the people in the middle who do the jobs. Now, obviously, all jobs are necessary, but you know, you know, I felt like so the people at again same sort of analogy, and I'm not bottom as in let's say the bottom of the pay scale. Yes. Uh, because what we learned is that some of those people at the bottom of the pay scale are the most necessary people. Yeah. As we've just discussed, and then the people who got furloughed and got to stay home on a, on a minimum of eighty percent of their wage, uh, and and furlough meant. You do not work. It was very specifically, you stay home and do not work. It's illegal to work. It was illegal to don't get another job, don't do anything. So stay at home, enjoy your garden, you know, make your sourdough. And those were the kind of like PR and, you know. Communications executive. Yeah, the kinds of things that you go, okay, but if, if Armageddon came... We wouldn't be going, oh, where is a communications yeah. expert? If we had to repopulate a planet and we were collecting useful people. Yes, they, yeah. wouldn't, be, they <laughs> wouldn't be front of the line, would yeah. they? Um, so, so it was really interesting to see how that, how that was so messed up. And then even now, we're still arguing about whether or not the top end should siphon off 1% to give to the people that made us, you know, made, made it possible for us to be here today. And now we're in an argument because we're recording this right before 
potential Freedom Day. Um, now we're now we're in the argument of of whether we should give them a break or not, and we're going na na na. The rest of us want to go to the pub. So if you could please still just prep for yet another massive yeah. wave of people coming your way and wear a mask or don't wear a mask because your mask offends me. Well, yeah. what's, no, well, that's the worrying thing about masks is that if you wear now after Freedom Day, the people who do choose to wear it's not as simple as choice. It's it, it's so ing- people are so angry about this. That with the people who don't think we should be wearing masks are now, after Freedom Day, going to start um, discriminating against those that do. Yeah. They're going to go, they're going to walk up to people on trains and go, why are you wearing that mask? I think, you don't I have think to. so. And I, I, the community kind of feeling that we had during the pandemic, where everyone was like, we love each other, clap for the NHS. I think that will evolve after Freedom Day. I think we'll start to see maybe the true colours of, of people in this country. You don't um, think we've seen their true colours yet? <laughs> oh, listen, wow. we've got nowhere near it. Seriously, we've got nowhere near it. It's gonna uh. get it's gonna get worse. And the, the polarisation between Freedom Day is wrong and Freedom Day is right, because now we've got something to pivot on it. So generally no, people are no. like, oh, we're anti-vaxxers or we're pro-vaccine and we're this and we're that. But I think now it's got people are gonna really, well, it's like you said, the visual idea, you've, I've got a mask, so you know what I think. Or I'm yeah. not wearing a mask, yeah, so you know true. what I think. So I think it's gonna be it's gonna be more of a aggressive conversation on social media. There's gonna be more videos of harassment, um, I think, and discrimination, like you said. And I think that there's gonna be more discontent, and I, I worry about that. Um, and I want to talk about that more. But seriously, man, I've got things to, I can't be editing for three hours tomorrow. So we have to wrap it up. I'm okay. sorry. And well, we'll have to more do it again. to the point. We've run out of planting. So yeah, I've, I, I've, I've eaten you. two plates worth of that, and yeah. it's amazing. I'm pleased. I love it when people eat my food. Um, Maria, thank you for coming to keep my company. It's been fantastic. Oh, pleasure, absolute pleasure. It's great to have a proper chat. It's beautiful. Thank you. That was the fantastic Ria Lena. Thank you, Ria, for coming all the way to my house uh, to chat with me. And you might be my favourite guest because you yammed two plates of plantain. Two full plates of plantain, man. That's that's good form. That's very polite of you to do that. So, yeah, appreciate that love. Uh, Ria is a superstar in the making. Actually, no, she's a superstar already. So if you want to keep up to date with what she's up to in the comedy world, you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram. And her handles are just her name, Ria Lena. I've been Athena Kablenu. Uh, you, you know what to do. If you like this podcast, share it, like it, do whatever your podcasting platform allows you to do to show it some love. If you'd like to do that, I appreciate you just getting to the end of another episode. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we'll catch up next time.